0: Honored to serve us all today. We come today to Luke, Luke 22, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and your devices. I also printed it wonderfully for us in the bulletin. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 35. As we turn there, I want us to think about Luke being a medical doctor and giving us his lens on Jesus' Gethsemane experience. And as you turn there, I'm wondering about your thoughts on doctors. Imagine you wake up tomorrow and you're feeling really, really poorly, and it only gets worse by Tuesday, and so you schedule two appointments to see two different doctors. You go to the first doctor and you tell him how you're feeling. He takes in what you say. He checks your eyes, your ears, your pulse. He walks out of the room. He comes back with a smile and a bottle of vitamins. He says, guess what? You're completely fine. Take two of these, and I want you to start more positive thinking your body it listens to your mind the best pharmacy is found inside you so start every morning take two of these and start focusing on all the good in you and you walk out feeling really encouraged i mean the solution to your sickness is as near as you the next day you wake up clean yourself up you look in the mirror and you go get them beautiful and you start off your day you're feeling great but by midday you're feeling worse than ever Fortunately, you got a second doctor's appointment, so you go to see him. Tell him how you're feeling. He does some tests, and he comes back with a frown, and he shows you some x-rays and gives you less than encouraging words. He says, I have bad news for you. You have cancer. Now, there is a cure, but you first have to accept my diagnosis, and then you have to go in for the treatment. Enter into treatment. (laughs) You leave there and you head straight out to go see that other doctor and you hold up the x ray and you say, Hey, what's going on here? And with a smile, he says, No way. That other doctor is just bringing a lot of negative energy your way. You are a beautiful person inside and out. That's what I see. You just need to believe in yourself. You are fine. Uh, By the way, would you like some more vitamins for Pep? Let me ask you, which doctor would you choose? Sounds like a silly question, but that's actually the cultural moment we find ourselves in right now. Most of our friends and neighbors are self-medicating and or are all in on doctor number one. We have no idea the power of Oprah in our day. Doctor number one, you find him on television, in self-help books, most music, and even in many pulpits. Preachers with smiles, cherry-picking verses to heal their patients lightly. Friends, uh, Luke 22 reveals the bad news, that we're far worse off than we think. Dr. Luke is going to document the agony, the extreme agony of Jesus as he faces our fatal disease, sin. But... His blood that starts dripping to the ground is actually a foreshadow of the good news. The coming cross that provides the complete cure to our calamitous condition. Let us pray that we might take it in before we read. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for waking us up today and bringing us here. And we acknowledge with Jeremiah that our hearts are sick. So we ask for your spirit right now. Will you take away our blinders? We ask that you'll also take away the preacher and send in his place the great physician, our Lord Jesus, that we might discover our only cure is in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35. And he, Jesus, said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. And he came out and went While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Some of us in our Thursday night study have been surveying folks in our community, and one of the questions in our survey that we ask is, why are there so many problems in the world? Why do you think there are so many problems in the world? What's wrong with the world? It's actually the same question the London Times posed to several authors about a hundred years ago. What's wrong with the world? They sent it to several authors and I think G.K. Chesterton's answer came back the quickest. He wrote back, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I have yet to get that response in any of my surveys. What's wrong with the world? I am actually biblical. The sin that resides in each and every one of us since the Garden of Eden is why we are all in such a mess. Uh, sadly, a hundred years later, this sounds really profound because our culture has lost sight of our sin issue. How many times do you see that listed in the news as one of our top problems? And when you don't know or believe that you have a disease that is killing you right now, the good news of Jesus' cross and his coming, they won't impress you. Let me ask, how impressed are you with Jesus? When you think of Jesus, we can all acknowledge he came in history. How impressed are you with him, his life, his death, his suffering that we read about here? If you're not yet Christian, if you're not yet Christian, I'm so glad you're here. If you are a Christian, feel free to stick around. This passage is worth reflecting on again and again. I actually tried to imagine the impression on Theophilus reading this for the very first time remember luke's intro he wrote this gospel for a man named theophilus so that he might have certainty about what jesus came and what he taught what impact what impression would this have made on theophilus i think he'd be stunned he's seen nothing like this for the first 21 chapters jesus was always eager to do his father's will Jesus was always eager to face every test the Father put before him. But here we find Jesus in agony, pleading that the Father remove this test. What's the test? Look at verse 37. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says to his disciples, I have to fulfill this. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 53. It was predicting a servant who had come to bear the sins of God's people. It's actually an Old Testament prophecy written about 800 years before Jesus even came. For homework, go home and read Isaiah 53. Read Isaiah 53 this week. Why, Joel? Well, for one, Jesus assumes it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Jesus assumes it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. That's why he's quoting this to them. Secondly, if your only Bible intake is from Pastor Joel on Sunday, you're putting your soul in great danger. I may appear like a nice smiling guy with your best interests at heart. But what if I'm cherry picking? Would you stake your eternity on me? I see Dave shaking his head, no. Good. I actually grew up in churches that cherry picked Isaiah fifty three to claim their physical healing. I knew Isaiah fifty three five by heart with his wounds we have been healed. Or King James actually, by his stripes I am healed. I could claim my healing. So what I thought, what impressed me about Jesus was his purpose was to make me healthy. That's not what Isaiah 53 is about. Yes, his wounds did buy us a future world where there'll be no disease. Won't that be great? But Isaiah 53 is about Jesus being numbered with the transgressors, being numbered with the sinners, with the prostitutes, the pedophiles, angry people, people who have sinned. He's being numbered with them. You see, Jesus' main mission, his main mission, and what you should be impressed with is he came to take our sin. That is the big problem. Luke 22 is this test. He's now facing his main mission head on a test that makes him plead and bleed. Our sins are actually starting to be laid on him as the cross looms close. Matthew Hill writes, though he was personally innocent, yet judicially and by way of imputation, he was the greatest offender that ever was. Is that the Jesus you see right now? At this moment? the greatest offender that ever was. What Hale is saying is that Jesus is becoming our substitute at this point, our substitute. That's today's point. That's the main point of today's sermon. Innocent Jesus taking the place, switching places with guilty sinners like you and I. Second Corinthians 5.21, For he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So if you believe and receive and rest in Jesus, then what that means for you is that Jesus suffered for your sin. Jesus died your death. And guess what? His righteousness is yours. How would you like that for a report card if you're not a believer? Jesus' perfect obedience credited to your record. That's the good news. Jesus becoming our soul-saving sin substitute. And I'm going to give us three eyes, if you like, points to hang our hats on. Jesus' instruction, the good news in Jesus' instructions, the good news in Jesus' isolation, and the good news in Jesus' intercession. Instructions, isolation, and intercession. Let's first start with the instructions 35 through 48. Let's read these verses again. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, That's enough. That's enough. It's kind of a strange passage. A lot of scholars get kind of boggled about this. I mean, Jesus tells them to go out sword shopping, (laughs) it's pretty strange. What this is, quite simply, is wartime instructions wartime instructions. Back in chapter 9 and 10, Jesus had sent out the disciples, first to 12 and then 70 of them. He sent them out empty-handed on a shorthand, short-term mission trip, basically. He gave them the power. They weren't totally empty-handed. They were actually giving power to cure diseases and to cast out demons. And when they went into towns and were doing this, guess what? Everybody loved them. Everybody loved them. They came back, oh, so excited. Oh, this is so great, Jesus. We have this power and everyone took us in we never lacked anything jesus is saying now it's time for a transition from people being receptive to you to people being hostile and it's all because of the cross that is looming jesus says i am now sending you out into a war zone and you better go prepared now, the disciples actually really like this. I think Simon the Zell at this point, he turns into Zorro, you know, and he whoops out his sword, I got one, and somebody else, I got one too. And Jesus' response is not, great, that is exactly the amount of gear we need. That's not what Jesus, the Greek literally reads, that's enough. Enough of that already. Jesus is using a metaphor here. He can't literally mean sell your cloak and go buy a sword. How good are the disciples going to be if they're walking around in their underpants? Really? In fact, Jesus is going to rebuke them later for using a sword by the end of this chapter. They don't understand the instructions, do we? They don't grasp why Jesus quoted Isaiah 53. Jesus came to destroy sin and Satan's power. That is why he came. That's his main mission. Their battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a call to put on the full armor of God, to pray. Actually, Jesus has been talking a lot about prayer in this chapter. Remember, Jesus just told Peter that Satan wanted to sift all of them like wheat. Jesus said, Satan is praying on you. Good news, I am praying for you. And the disciples are to see. They're going out in the battle and they're to follow Jesus' example. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you in the war zone and you better be praying hard and working hard. And these are the church's instructions today. We attend to the means of grace, the word, the prayers, the sacraments. And then we head out on the battlefield to deliver the captives, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. I'm glad we're having joint prayer meetings now. Yes, it's hard work, but that's what it means to be a disciple. Most of us walk in here well-seasoned disciples of consumerism. We need to learn how to become well-seasoned disciples of Jesus. And we should expect hostility. Because Jesus received hostility. We don't stand back and cheer, Yay, Jesus! Yay! Go get crucified for us and get us glory! Yay, yay! No. We're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Follow him to the glory that he's won for us. Don't you want to know Jesus better? You may want to know him in glory, but the way you really know Jesus is by following him in a hostile world by taking up your cross. Like Hebrews 12 said at the beginning. We lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely as we run a race with our eyes fixed on him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated in glory. So we see the good news in Jesus' instructions. Now we see the good news in his isolation. Verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. You ever think about the good news? It required Jesus' utter isolation. Have you ever felt isolated, all alone? (laughs) Dear soul, Jesus understands. But Jesus' isolation was far worse than any of ours has ever been because Jesus had never known anything and he existed before, he's always existed. He had never known anything except for perfect communion with his Father. He looked into his Father's face with pure love and the Father looked at him with pure love, ever gazing on each other, ever loving. That's about to change. It's starting to change right here. The Father is soon to turn his face away as his son becomes sin or as calvin notes jesus had never seen a change of face from the loving father and suddenly he's seeing a new face that he's never seen the wrathful judge bb warfield writing on christ's emotional life on this section he says listen though he died on the cross yet died not of the cross as we commonly say but of a broken heart. Jesus' heart is being broken here in Gethsemane. You ever think about Jesus dying of a broken heart? He sees in front of him the supreme hour where the Father's going to abandon him. He's never known that. Oh, and the disciples, they're following suit. They're about to abandon him too. No one has ever known aloneness like Jesus Christ. Judas had already snuck away to double-cross Jesus and the other 11. They don't see their own sin. Do you see why Jesus says, pray that you not enter into temptation? Jesus doesn't actually tell them to pray for him. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, pray for you because you don't get my mission yet. And you're about to join the double-crosser. You're going to deny me or you're going to desert me. And then Jesus withdraws like the scapegoat of ancient Israel. They would send off after they laid their sins upon this beast. They'd send it off to die in the wilderness. And Jesus kneels down. This is significant. Stop here for a moment just pause on this. Because this is not how Jews prayed. Actually, remember chapter 18. How, How did the Pharisee and the tax collector, how did they pray? with their hands up, raised, standing up. That's how all Jews prayed. But Jesus kneels here. Is this like the new prayer posture we're supposed to take up? How do you pray? What's your posture? I got good news. There's a recorded debate among church leaders that helped to settle the matter of the proper prayer posture. Ready to find out whether you've been doing it right? Here we go. The proper way for man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes. The only proper attitude is down upon his knees. So here's a vote for Jesus Montevallo's posture. Nay, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms, with rapt and upturned eyes. Ah, I pray a lot like that. I'm feeling good now. But wait. Oh, no, no, said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. Here's another one. It seems to me his hand should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Here's the winner. Ready? Last year I fell in Hodgkin's wealth head first. said Cyril Brown, with both of my heels a-stickin' up, my head a-pointin' down. And I done prayed right then and there, best prayer ever said, the prayin'est prayer ever prayed, a-standin' on my head. You guys are a hard bunch. You guys are a hard bunch. But we all know the proper prayer posture, though. I actually think Cyrus Cyrus Brown has it right. Desperation, helplessness, is the fuel of our prayer life. That's why Jesus right now feeling more helpless than ever, feeling the isolation, falls to his knees, and he prays. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Our third point, the good news of Jesus' intercession. And we're entering into deep waters here. We're brought into this most intimate scene between the Father and the Son. The eternal Father and the eternal Son. And Jesus makes a request of his Father. Because he feels the Father pressing a cup into his hand. And he says, remove it. Now, I know this raises a whole lot of questions. So much ink spilled in this. First is, Joel, what's in the cup? It's actually the cup of wrath that you find over and over again in the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Psalm 11, there's other places. It's a cup that God will force the wicked to drink down to the dregs on Judgment Day. Imagine all your sins. Starting at the earliest age, you can remember. and Oh, and adding all the ones you don't Remember? All your sins that you've committed each and every day. Oh, that's a lot, isn't it? Think of all the times you've hurt people, all the bad things you say. Fill it up, right? And then add in all the sins of all people for all mankind. Thousands of years of sins. Of all that's happening in Ukraine right now. Think of all that's happening in downtown right now in the bad part of town. All put in there. All the evils of all history this is the cup being pushed into jesus hand right now and he's saying i don't want to drink it and he adds not my will but yours be done now this might surprise us as well what does jesus have a different will than the father aren't they both god don't they have total agreement how can this be and yes jesus divine nature his godness is entirely on board 100 percent but remember jesus is now fully human that's why he came. And as a holy human, it would be sinful for him not to pray this. You understand? It would be sinful for him not to pray this. Friends, nowhere else in Scripture does Jesus' humanity and holiness together shine through. Jesus asked his Father to take this away because otherwise, if he doesn't, he's saying, I'm not holy. Unlike us, Jesus abhors the sin that distances us from god do you feel distant from god that's your sin and his humanity has no instinct in him that would entice him to take a cup that would cause distance from his father he has never experienced the distance from god that is our normal here but if i if you if sinners are to be saved there's no way the father can remove this cup even as the father's heart breaks over what his son is willing to do out of love for us. Sinclair Ferguson commented that if the father, looking at his tormented son, if he ever sang old hymns, he would have sang, If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I'd invite you to take that a step further and put your name in there. If ever I love thee, here at Gethsemane, put your name in tis now because the father's no to jesus intercession reveals how loved you are the father has never ever 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 refused a request from his beloved son ever and now he does and it makes me wonder what i probably should never wonder maybe shouldn't even say but I sometimes want to think, does at this moment the Father, God the Father love me more than he loves his own son Jesus? God said no to his son so that he could say yes to me and to you if you believe. You realize that the greatest gift God ever gave you was the result of unanswered prayer. The greatest gift God ever gave you was the result of an unanswered prayer. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And Again, we see Jesus' humanity on display. He's a little lower than the angels. Luke alone includes this angel from heaven coming to strengthen Jesus. I don't have much to comment on this. Uh, Scottish preacher Alexander White commented that after he sees Jesus in glory, you know who's next in line for him. He wants to meet this angel. Only this angel in all of creation got to peer into the mystery of this grace that happens at Gethsemane. What's interesting, though, is when angels, normally when they show up, and they show up in a good way, they always provide help. And he does strengthen them, but it doesn't seem to help at all. Because so Look at the next verse. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling to the ground. Agony, sweat, great drops of blood. I recently talked to a man who prayed at a hospital with a weeping father. The father was weeping as he looked upon his broken baby boy. The result of being in a car hit by a drunk driver The boy died a few hours later. As you can imagine, this man was pretty raw, having witnessed this dying child and being there with this weeping father. He went on to tell me with tears that he could not believe in a loving creator because of things like this. In fact, if there was a loving creator, he would put a force shield around every single little child. In fact, he only prayed... Because the father might find his words to be a comfort. He didn't believe there was a creator. His question was, how can anyone believe in a creator who would allow such tragedies? It's a good question. It's a good question. Maybe some of you feel the same. Maybe you've experienced some great trauma like this. Maybe you haven't, but you see the horrors in Ukraine or you're looking at the earthquake. Thousands, tens of thousands of people crushed to death. Maybe just hear what happened last week in downtown Elkhart. How can anyone believe in a Creator who pers- permits such nonstop sorrows in our world? How? I told the man that I was so sorry, and I said I really appreciate your soft heart. I think that disarmed him. And then I said, that is exactly why I'm a Christian, why I believe in the God of the Bible. The Bible doesn't reveal a God unable or unwilling to aid dying and hurting people in our world. God is not up there lounging in a chair watching our tragedies play out on some heavenly big screen. The Bible here reveals God's Son being crushed like an olive on this mountain. His blood is beginning to drip, drip, drip drip and soon he's going to be on a cross and it's going to flow out like a river and the father who sent his son watches him be broken and die i said this shows the god of the bible the only god i will worship to be loving and relatable especially to a helpless father looking at his innocent son dying horrifically Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What has struck me again and again as I marinate in the glory of Luke 22 is that despite all their failings, Jesus never once shows or puts on them a hint of shame, these disciples. I mean, they ruined his Last Supper, pointing fingers at each other. One of them betrays him. They're fighting about who's the greatest among them. Peter completely ignores Jesus' gift of prayer and his warning. And now at the most critical hour of Jesus' life, and of human history for that matter, the battle's afoot. Judas is drawing near. Everything hinges on this moment. And these disciples are like some of us right now. (sighs) Actually, they might be starting to understand. Loose notes, they were sleeping for sorrow. Have you ever lost a loved one or had someone leave you? And you're absolutely overwhelmed with sorrow. And you're weeping and you're weeping, and then suddenly you just nod off. Have you ever sleep better? <laughs> I think that's what's going on here. Some of them are weary from sorrow. But I hope, as I conclude this sermon, that your sorrow is not for Jesus here. I hope that's not how you're impressed with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry for him and his suffering. Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. You know, I never watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, and I never want to. And I'm not judging you if you did. That's beside the point. But if you did, don't feel sorry for Jesus. Because I believe that's what that means. movie promotes. Feel sorry for all the horrible things that he went through. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. See, I know a lot of people who cried and cried about that movie and were just so blown away about Jesus' suffering. And right now they're on their way to hell if they don't change their sinful lives. It made no impact them feeling sorry for Jesus. Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I would feel sorry for him. Jesus suffered so that you would worship him and hate the sin that caused it. Jesus suffered so that you would worship him, fall down to your knees and hate every sin that you commit that actually caused it. So I close with saying, hate the sin that is killing you and embrace Christ as the cure. Two closing points of application. Rise and pray that you not enter into temptation realize these are the final words jesus says to his family before he dies a person's dying words his last words they carry some weight right ever seen someone die in their last words (laughs) we saw the agony jesus had about the cup and he now warns them about temptation to sin let me ask you how horrified are you by the sin that tempts you what's your temptation how horrified are you by that sin do we see it as a cancer how aware are we of the battlefield and that the enemy is lurking i mean jesus just made it very clear there's a battle afoot that's why he's saying pray and i promise you there's not a single one of us here who are able to withstand satan or any of his horde they will wrestle you down and whoop you you have no chance against any of them they're everywhere by the way satan is the prince of the power of the air we read that this morning sam did he's the prince of the power of the air think about that You're going to leave here. You're going to go home, work, school, wherever you're going to go. Is there going to be air in any of those places? (coughs) Satan's horde will be there. And he's especially thick in some places. Think about where he's thickest. Actually, it might be in your pocket, a little screen. (coughs) Satan's horde is thick (laughs) in some places. Anywhere there's air, that means you must rise. Rise. What does that mean? I think it means you need to take initiative. Make a plan. Wake up. Do something so you can set aside a regular time to pray that you not enter into temptation because it's all there. It's everywhere. Be it lust, porn, gossiping, boasting, belittling, whatever it is, be in prayer. The enemy will be at work tempting you to go there saying, try it. It'll feel good. It's no big deal. It's not that horrible. Don't fall and become prey. Rise and pray. It's a battlefield, so call in for heavenly air support. And call each other. And pray for each other. Find out what's going on in each other's lives. And we will make it if we turn to Jesus, which is my final point of application. I'll be brief. Turn to Jesus. Go to Him because He is the great physician. And let Him take that burden of sin, that burden of shame for the first time, or for the millionth time, if you've been following Jesus, turn to him because he is your best friend. Jesus came to bear that weight of guilt that presses down on you. And when you do, when you hand that over to him and keep handing over, it is the most freeing thing in the world. You know, if somebody can come up to you this week and say, you are the most horrible person in the whole world. And you can say, huh? You don't know the half of it. <laughs> I'm actually much worse than you think. I'm far worse than that. But Jesus took that all away. And he made me into a saint by grace alone. And I worship him for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this text of Scripture that is a veritable ocean before us. We could never... From the depths of it or even get across it but we know that you have something in it for each and every one of us and so i ask and pray that uh, we will we will meditate on it that this passage will come back again and again and that the holy spirit will bring it before us and i pray that we won't resist what jesus is seeking to do in our lives and how he's seeking to turn us from what destroys us i pray for everyone here i pray for everyone online I pray for our community, Father. We ask that you'll have mercy on us all. Turn us to Jesus and away from sin. Rend the heavens and come down, Heavenly Father. You're our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.